I forgot. I forgot that we were doing this at this time. I, what I said. Oh, so J- Jeff, go ahead. Why don't you uh, introduce Cody and uh, say hello? Oh well, Cody Wilson needs no introduction because he's uh, changed the world like five times in the last <laughs> eight months or something. So uh, the originator of the of the three D printer gun, revolutionary, uh, visionary, radical, the philosopher, technician, uh, legal theorist, and uh, yeah, visionary man of the future. So it's a pleasure to have you here, Cody Wilson. Wow, it's the finest introduction I've ever had. Thank you. I don't deserve it, I'm sure, but um, happy to be here. Tell us about your American flag. It's it's all in quotes, right? Uh, I mean, <laughs> it doesn't have to be. I do think that there's a kind of, um, not just a Protestant ethic, but a certain American spirit, or maybe it's my own nostalgia for indigenous American radicalism. So my version of America, or the idea of the proposition that was, is you know Thoreau, Emerson, Benjamin Tucker. These are... American people with American perspectives, and so on. That's a good point, actually. I mean, there is a kind of, I guess, for lack of a better term, Jeffersonian Thomas Paine-style tradition, isn't there? And we're seeing it come to life nowadays. I, I think it's fair. Yeah, it's fair to say. And, okay, it's a persuasive redefinition, and at the same time, you get to keep your tongue in your cheek like any good hipster. You hedge it a little bit, you know. Um, but it's I, would like it, I would like it better if it had 13 instead of 50 stars, though. <laughs> yeah, no, we could get that one, right? That was the kind of biggest one I could find on eBay at the time, if I remember. And you know, I'll tell you, I remember hanging up on the wall. I was listening to Mark Levin, I think, on talk radio, on like iHeartRadio at the time. And he was, you know, he was railing against Ron Paul, calling him RuPaul and stuff. Like, it was just a weird time. Uh, I can't exactly describe what that moment was like. Very strange. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm in Texas right now, and you're in Texas. We're all in Texas, aren't we? We are, all three of us. You know, it's the future. Yeah, well, the thing that strikes me about Texas, and there's no other state that does this, I mean, typically the, 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 uh, the Texas flag is, you know, flying ev- you know, everywhere. You're just driving along the highways. You just can't, you know, there's a real love of, <clears throat> of um, the smaller unit versus the larger unit in Texas, don't you think? It's true, and even especially in the, the Obama moment, right? Uh, I've seen a lot of guys, uh, Gadsden and Gonzalez flags especially around Central Texas, uh, in the Hill Country. So it, I, I forget, like, so should I speak like we have an audience? So for those that don't know, and how could you not, but uh, the Gonzalez flag is the come, the come and take the flag, which has been so well appropriated by the, the Second Amendment. Yeah, there's, uh, so so um, you say in, in light of uh, Obama, I mean, who who's widely loathed, of course. Um, but, but do you ever worry that... Uh, the anti-Obama feelings are just, you know, just another, you know, sort of partisan hysteria, you know, that's going to get rechanneled into love of the next Republican president, blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, like, there's no, there's no question that that's some of what's going on. I mean, that just, uh, what is it called? Like, um, uh, Bojo wrote a little pithy statement about it, but it's uh, this kind of love of not being in power. You get to exercise and bring up all these old poetries from the past and kind of righteous indignation, you know. Uh, it's a way of selling to your base easier, right? And they'll buy that stuff. Uh, but yeah, they'll be right back voting for Chris Christie or whoever it is, you know, the next pragmatic Republican. Yeah, and who knows whether these people actually, I mean, sometimes it seems like in the American system, uh, we just elect uh, politicians to entertain us, you know, and, 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 <laughs> and, and, and the rest of the, the real state, you know, just kind of, kind of, kind of continu- continues to exist. Uh, by the way, I talked uh, yesterday to somebody from Romania who was there when Ceausescu bought it in the chest. Do you remember that? 
Would I be able to? When, when did that happen? Okay, so this is like 1989. Okay, it's the Great Revolution. I, I'm pretty sure I was about 12 months old. Today. Yeah, uh, no, I was. It was. I was 11, but 11 months old. But um, <laughs> but no, she was there. And but but Cody, let me just tell you something. It's very interesting to me. She said because uh, it's a big dramatic guy thing, right? I mean, this guy's a, a, a despot. You know, he's a monster. Uh, there's a coup that happens. They grab the guy out of the palace. They, you know, they kidnap him and they shoot him and his wife. Uh, yeah, it was thrilling. It was, it was such a kick. But she told me something interesting. She, 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 she said, "Not a damn thing changed, actually." Uh, she said, "Everything remained exactly the same." And I said, "What's an example of that?" She goes, "Well, the healthcare system is exactly the same. The educational system is just the same. The spying apparatus just was was unaffected by this. You know, the, in other words, the state continued to exist." Yeah, sure, sure. All the police structures and everything. And you're right. I mean, your point is a good one. I would like to further operationalize it, though. Like, it would be great to me if we could all finally get to this absurd point where we recognize we're only voting for them. Just for entertainment, uh, because like, some some sizable amount of their influence has kind of been so greatly diminished or you know, stunted. Um, maybe that's really wishful thinking. Now, one of the things that you've educated me about, and this is what Stefan and I talked before this interview, that this would be something I think you'd be helpful to explain to people, is when you first saw that within digital distribution and cryptography and the universalization of communication, uh, the capacity uh, for people to uh, develop something more powerful than the state itself, and and how you saw that you could crystallize this in, in the printing of a, of a 3D gun. Can you, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, I, I think a, a lot of it came all at once in, in an initial conversation I had with a, a fellow traveler named Ben Dinio. Um, although it's really difficult to kind of pull the rhetoric out and, and make the plan and everything, but we saw the ideas. Um, maybe it's just because we were in the post-WikiLeaks moment and everything, but I mean, even without coming across Tim May and rehashing some of this old stuff from Satoshi, and we just thought the digital distribution, digital manufacture, um, that's what you're talking about. Like, uh, the total disintermediation, like the total disintermediation of all state actors and institutions. I mean, it just kind of software is eating the political world. How can we, how can we really put that into like an obviously transferable and, and distributable image for people? And, you know, it's so difficult to make movies about the internet. It's a good example, but when you see like a gun coming out of a printer, you know, like the, the images are just too powerful. And, and we knew that the media would be complicit uh, in carrying that that image to just the corners of the earth. So we thought it was something that an anarchist needed, a project that an anarchist needed to do, to be able to seize that messaging opportunity. But it's something that, that um, it's, it's going to take a while for people to fully realize. I mean, what is the fundamental reason why you think that putting you know, a CAD file you know, on a distributed network uh, somehow you know, achieves something that was never achievable before? I think maybe in so there's a qualitative difference. You know, nothing is ever quite completely new, um, but there is some kind of essential difference in, in what was done, and it, it also serves as a template of thought. I think so. Right, everyone recognizes that, and it's like direct materiality or whatever. The the gun is a kind of stupid and impractical device, especially like all in plastic. You would never choose it to you know defend your home with it, but. Um, uh, something like in Baju's sense of like repetition and the history of events, like there will always be 
moment on into the future, at least ideologically we believe this, that kind of keep redeeming and echoing this initial moment, this pipe that we, that we created, the greater and greater guns will be released into the internet and there's kind of no proper police structure to even, to even adjust for this, you know, and it's caused Did you see the camera freeze, Stefan? Yep. Cody, you there? Looks like he's been frozen in time. Is he back? Here he goes. Okay, he's back in. Good. You guys, my my computer blue screened on me. Like the feds didn't want that last point being delivered. Well, that's so, what, yeah, you should deliver it. We're then. on my phone. Now. Oh, okay. Well, I, you know, kind of. Let me log into my computer. Well, but the yeah, I think you see where I'm going. Like the liberal. Michael's got a frozen happy face. <laughs> Isn't that a that's a beautiful picture actually? It is. Like Michael's happy face. The happiest guy ever. So now we've got two frozen pictures. You look pretty happy this morning. Yeah, I'm pretty I'm pretty happy actually. You know, I mean there's Well, you're just, in, you're in Texas. Yeah. Oh, was that the reason? Yeah, the home the home of your birth. Listen, I had a fried pie last night you just would not believe. Oh my god, it was just unbelievable. A fried pie? Yeah, it was the best fried pie I've ever had. Is that paleo? It sounds like it's horribly anti-paleo. No, it, was, it, was, it didn't have a lot of sugar, actually. Mm -hmm. It was fresh. Okay, we are killing time, Cody, while we're waiting for you to talk about fried pies. You guys should hang out for a bit, you know? We'll just, like, we'll just like pop in and out. That's what we'll do. <laughs> no, but no, please, please, please continue. Because... History and came back in on pies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But then all comes to fried pies are a lot like 3D printed guns. I mean, they, they point, they're metaphors that point to a larger, beautiful reality. Uh, <laughs> I think there's, there, you know, there's multiple dimensions to what we did. Um, and I guess you're just asking for me to kind of pull them out. But I mean, it works on a, a number of levels. It, it would not have even been interesting as just a thought experiment, though. I mean, it was necessary to first create the world where a printed gun was possible and then that gun functioned. Before, before you even get to kind of seize upon the other terrors. Um, so we had to do that first. So it was a very practical level of what, of what we did, a very technical and you know, technological level. But that was just the excuse, right, the platform for delivery of more things. One of the great ironies of that whole period, I mean, first of all, Cody, I mean, there was something amusing and brilliant about the way you managed it because, I mean, you're a philosopher, and you marketed yourself as a as a as a very dangerous man, <laughs> <laughs> which you you sort of are dangerous. But the, no, the, no, no. It's you're you're right. You're right. What 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 was it, what was that about? I mean, because anybody who knows you, you know, is is impressed, you know, above all else by your by your, your contemplativeness and, and your thoughtfulness and, and your, your your philosophical vision. And yet, in the movies, you know, you 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 came across as just a dangerous guy with a with a with a weapon. You know, I mean, what was the thought that went into that? 
Oh, no, I think of I think of Coors, especially when Vice called. This was months in the making. I, the Vice documentary is what I point to as like the arch delivery of that of that particular messenger and and message. Um, you know, at the same time, they want they want to be scared. They want you to scare them. Everyone's looking for their boogeyman, but um, I guess you can. There's a particular kind of I call it a progressive moral matrix, but you can you can depend upon hitting certain nerves to produce certain things, right? When within this complex and in the battle of talking points and stuff. So to be that person, that kind of cartoon version of myself, I just felt right. I felt like I was striking the right note, and I knew that it would just kind of, it would just, I don't know, ripple, man, all the way to where it needed to go. Right. Um, well, so that way people didn't have to uh, speculate that you're that you're, you're a danger. You just said, look, you know, I'm, I'm the one who knocks, you know. It was to cultivate the revolutionary imagination of it, and, and, and in perhaps an irresponsible and crass way, right? But that's the other dangerous part of it, right? Like, revolutionaries can have a sense of humor, too, I think. So. <laughs> The thing is, um, to, to that Vice doc is great. It just captures this youthful hubris and all these other things. Like, ah, oh, they can't stop us, you know. And like, with this a relative abandon to it, and um, you know, some of that's their editing. But I, basically, I think it that video will work for a long time for many people. This is the particular hostility our generation and future generations should have towards these police structures or toward the state itself. It captures a certain attitude, which I hope to be reproduced by other people. Your video, uh, Stefan, I don't know if you remember this, but, you know, that was a... Watching that, the first firing, I'm not sure if that's what you're referring to as the Vice document, but it was the, the first firing through the video that, that got taken down, you know? Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that video itself was, is an important piece of history. Um, which I'm sure it's out there somewhere, you know, I mean, we can't, it's, can't be... It's back up, actually, it's back up. It's back up, okay. Well, initially, they, it was taken down, and, and you know, to me, it was just such a symbol of the idiocy and incompetence of, of the state apparatus that it was taken down for, not because, you know, it was dangerous and, you know, uh, you know there's a guy manufacturing a gun without anybody's approval or whatever, but because the 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 music that you used on the video was was copyright protected, <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it was true. What I liked but, about that is how the YouTube video that you ripped the music from to use was still up with no oh, copyright right. notice. <laughs> so of course, you know, I didn't just steal it; I stole it from someone else who stole it. Um, you know, I mean, everything's a remix. <laughs> And and we don't know for sure that that video was somehow targeted to be taken down. I mean, for all you know, it really was the DMCA takedown based on the theme music. Yeah, but I'm I'm kind of familiar with YouTube postings by now. We've only done a few, maybe like 20 total ever. But um, it didn't. It got through the content ID system that YouTube has, so it got through that first layer of detection. I think some agent from one of the big houses flagged it as they do. So. Uh, who knows? Maybe because it was so popular, it was a victim of its own, you know, popularity. Uh, but actually, within a couple of months, I, I got it put back up. So it's been it's been posted uh, a few more times by media and, and still maintains all of its views and will be there in the record. For well, if, even when it got taken down, there were I I I quickly pulled up ten copies oh, that sure. were <clears throat> that were rebroadcast from from news media, and in fact. Um, I mean, like the whole world would be taken down if you really enforced copyright anyway, right? More or less. I mean, no question. No question. Well, you know, it's interesting. I was just thinking, um, 
I've always thought it was strange we had the BATF, right? The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Like, why are these three, three things linked, right? I mean, they're not really linked, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. But if you think about it, the modern version is copyright and 3D printing of weapons and other useful things. So you can see there, the government's focusing on a digital equivalent of the intersection of the kind of the things they don't want people to know about information, recipes, 3D printers, copyrighted, I, I, pirated things. They're all intersecting in a new modern way. To to kind of throw more evidence toward that claim, which I think is I think is an accurate one. Um, there are bills at the municipal and state level in New York targeting all computer aided assistance and manufacturing processes of certain objects. Right now, firearms. But I mean, just the idea, right? Not just the 3D printer. But in the end, uh, computer-aided milling, uh, laser cutting, anything, you know, like, it shouldn't be easy for you to do. You know, let's throw it back to 200 years ago, and, and that certainly seems to be uh, the target of that, of that police effort. Maybe that's why steampunk, steampunk is popular, right? The idea of just let's do everything analog and mechanical. That's exactly. Get around these laws. And all uh, Steve Israel. Oh, no, no, no. That, so there's all a whole team of bureaucrats wanting to take right. on... Many of Technology. these, many of these bureaucrats, even at the D.C. City Council level, I mean, they've they've stolen language from bills proposed in the Senate and the House. But you know, back to that video, by the way, that video, I mean, it's it's kind of crappy. I mean, the quality's not good on it. It was it was a rush job put together, and I had like a documentary crew filming me while I made it, so it was also self-consciously edited in a strange way. But um, I really thought that video was like the perfect delivery mechanism for kind of and and really the the capstone and everything we had tried to do. Because we named the gun the Liberator uh, after this OSS project back from World War II, um, where the the OSS proposed that the United States would drop these little these little stamped pistols by the hundreds of thousands over occupied Europe, and this would be the kind of one of the ultimate acts of psychological warfare and and emboldening of the civilian resistance and everything uh, against the Axis powers. That project really came off. Um, and I thought, and the way we did it, we, we I brought up old footage of, of bombers from World War II interspersed with, uh, you know, with the printer and, and with the gun itself. And it was important first to shoot it, to kind of announce its arrival. But then the other part of the video was it, it was the delivery, the metaphorical delivery. Mm. Uh, you saw the bombers running. This announcement was also spreading uh, the link to our website, you know, downloaded here. We had, in a sense, this was our bombing run, our, our drop. You know, we were dropping it over the world. And we were redeeming that moment historically, and I, I think there's something very true to uh, uh, this revolutionary redemption as a, as a kind of process of activism. Um, by the way, uh, Stefan, steampunk was popular last year. <laughs> I know. I'm so behind yeah, the times. That's okay. Um, the, um, uh, within days of the release of that CAD file, there were other people who had remixed it and seemingly improved it. That's right. Yeah, there. Uh, in fact, even even to this day, there there is a core group of of interested parties who are continuing to release and develop files related to the Liberator and other technologies. A guy in Canada this summer uh, put out a 22 uh, kind of carbine version of the Liberator, which works much better than the guns we we were prototyping. Um, yeah, they all had varying degrees of kind of press reception, and of course, it's all diminishing returns at this point. Uh, in a sense, I'm glad that I'm not really able to share the files anymore. Um, because it would kind of be a one-trick show at this point, but um, yeah. the moment was important for us to deliver in the way we did. And but this this points to a, a, a wonderful uh, aspect of digital media is that that it can be re remixed and and that it's it's malleable. I mean, since these are essentially ideas, 
being made portable, then they're also not only immortal, but also malleable infinitely. Um, plastic beyond plastic, right? Like, yeah. It's a very, no, you're right. And that's its, that's its great hope, and in the end, that's its total evasiveness. So what? You know? There, there was a Forbes piece last week uh, about there's a performance artist in New York, I think, that had released a piece of software only for Mac right now, but will support him in releasing the, the Windows version. It is a kind of visual corruptor and encryptor of these visible data files. So even if you can quickly cobble together a, a police regime that can take account uh, of certain shape, this one will visually distort them and encrypt them to where only receiving part, you know parties at the end of a peer-to-peer -peer, uh, transaction can kind of turn them into what they actually are in some sense. I mean, like we we haven't even fully exploited the you know the strange fractal you know dangerousness of this visible moment. Uh, we're just getting there. You know, and I hope the Liberator is the kind of beginning of uh, that moment. Yeah, um, and you know, you contrast this method of manufacturing and development with with the way states have always behaved. Uh, something new comes along, they want to codify it, regiment it, contain it, freeze it, uh, distribute it, tax it, control it, and so then things are sort of stuck the way they are for for forever that way, right? That would be the, the state's ideal, just to freeze everything. Um, but in the market world that you're helping to unleash, things never stop changing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Uh, Tom Coburn expressed that beautiful containment like mythos or ideology quite perfectly in his letter to Homeland Security, I think it was in August, about Bitcoin, when the Senate opened its official inquiry into Bitcoin. Uh, and Coburn, right, the arch-conservative, says, uh, what's his language? Um, you know, we, we want to see if it's useful. Sure, there might be some use in it. Uh, One that said something about we want, like, a holistic... There we go, we go. Approach. You know, this needs, the, this needs the light touch of regulation, right? Obama's light touch. We want a whole government approach. We want to, you know, we want to assess, because it's our duty, you know, as a Senate, to provide a, a framework in which beautiful technology can fit, and so that it doesn't, doesn't hurt anyone or kind of slip outside the bounds and do, you know, necessarily undestructive things and... Or unnecessarily destructive. I mean, it was all there in that letter. I mean, the perfect status ideology, like, well, look, we're here to provide the framework, and insofar as it helps us and you know boosts GDP and gets us elected, great. Uh, look, none of this dangerous stuff, and that should be contained. And so far, let's let's inquire. Um, do you, would you like to um, talk to us a little bit about the origin of the dark wallet, its purpose, and where you're going with it? Uh, this is a kind of a new venture for you, but it's still along the same lines as, as your your previous endeavors. Uh, that's true. Um, I especially the the messaging, the PR packaging is a little bit a little bit heavy-handed with the whole darkness and everything. The thematics are maybe too obvious, but my whole goal is when we release that to get it to the Financial Times and scare the right people with it. And whatever Bitcoin's in vogue now, it just hit 300 or over 300 today. But basically, our, our idea is that um, there are, there's a kind of division within the developmental community specifically in Bitcoin. Uh, and then there's also a cultural problem happening. And there, it's not like there never are cultural problems in technologies. This is probably a, one of the oldest stories ever. When a, when a fun new anarchist toy is developed and receives mainstream attention, okay, it starts to, um, it starts to be appraised and used by other people and then ultimately for counter-revolutionary goals. We want to fight the Bitcoin Foundation's management and especially their management of the narrative of what Bitcoin is in the press and, and what it can be 
um, because they're the kind of regulatory interface right now for this piece of software. So what was a distributed protocol, piece of software that could, couldn't really be managed or targeted, um, is being like indirectly targeted and pressured so by a group of entrepreneurs um, in California and New York who now represent or claim to represent the interests of Bitcoin. And I know this is like the backwards way of going about this, but we have um, a lead engineer for Bitcoin's back end, the big Bitcoin back end named Mike Hearn, who disavows all anarchist purpose in his, in his mission and what he's doing, and ultimately disavows the Satoshi principles expressed in the Genesis transactions. We've got Peter Sinis, um and Jaron Luca, who express full-on Stockholm syndrome um, of what they're doing. That, no, in the end, regulation is what we need, and it will be the best thing for Bitcoin, and you know everybody else shut up. Uh, I think there's a, a strain of activism needed in Bitcoin right now just to produce software that does what Bitcoin threatened to do from the beginning, um, and to in, just intentionally carry out some of these, these anarchist messages or goals, like, oh, I don't know, trustless mixing of your Bitcoin as an out-of-the-box security feature. And you're, you should have financial privacy. You should be able to launder your own money in league with other people. I know I'm using a tainted word, but I mean that's just one example of a security feature we think Bitcoin should have just necessarily. I mean, obviously, if you want to run our wallet, you should be able to have an extra layer of anonymity because there is a war on anonymity as a as a human capacity right now, right? I mean, it's the biggest topic of conversation since this summer. And I'll stop talking so much, but that's kind of where we see. You know, but you know, a critic might say something like, "Look." Um, uh, with or without the Bitcoin Foundation, the state has a strong interest in controlling money. Uh, so this is going to happen regardless, just as it's happened for the last you know, 500 years, uh, mm -hmm. 3,000 years, whatever you want to say. So uh, is there not a purpose in having some you know, industry group to get in there and, 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 and try to minimize the blow to... Uh, to make it more rational than it might otherwise be. I mean, in other words, by, by declining to take part in the process of government or regulation, um, are, are we not just turning over the field to the, to the state to do whatever it wants? That, that's, that's probably fair. To, to be honest, it probably is. But there's a, there's a particular form of, and I'm going to call it ideology or friend ideology, uh, that I think is at work, which is that, well, look, no, in the end, you know, we, we need to do this, and we have to do this to attain some legitimacy. And, and the big message I had from the 3D printed gun, or one of them, is that, look, in, in the end, in trying to avoid the final indignities, you end up producing them. Um, it, are, it is these people so desirous of a, of a poor regulatory outcome, which will, by their own self-censorship, and this, this feeling of pressure that they have, produce what they, what they ostensibly set out uh, to prevent. Well, that's, that's interesting because that is more or less the story of, of, of regulation, isn't it, from, from, from the beginning of time. I mean, you have this sort of cooperation between industry and, 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 and government, each sort of pursuing their own purposes and finding, you know, compatible, compatible interests. But, but it, it, is, it is, I think, a strategic question, isn't it, you know, how industry should go about... Um, you know, staying as free as possible, given given the rapacious nature of of, of, of government. I think in the, in the short term, or go ahead, Sam. Well, I'm just curious. I, I uh, you're a student now. Is that is that right? A law student? 
a form, former law student. Former law student. Okay. Well, I was curious how you, you know, your activities were received by your fellow law students and the, uh, um, uh, and maybe you could tell us what you're doing now. And uh, uh, I'd be curious about that. Yeah, you were you were at the University of Texas. I mean, you have to be pretty smart to get into that school. Uh, well, thank you, but uh, the students there, um, I was there for two years, and so I can still answer the question. Um, students at Tier 1 law schools are power-hungry, uh, <laughs> what's the word, uh, you know, like enablers of the system. I mean, there's not a, there's not exactly a lot of uh, questioning of the, of the state of structure. I mean, they're, 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 not, they're not the people that are bucking the system, right? <laughs> right, and of course, the question was put to me, like, why are you here? Um, I mean, I get it. You're learning the vocabularies for how to navigate uh, and manipulate certain, these traditional levers of power. Um, okay, fine. But you also, I think, learn some of the, the old school common law liberal methods of thought. You know, I mean, like, how, how do we... There, there is still some juridical stuff worth knowing, I think. Um, and so, insofar as that was useful, I, I studied those things. I also studied the history of constitutional law, which is just, you know, the history of American politics, basically. Um, my most of the most of my friends and the students when they initially heard this about a year ago, I think couldn't believe it. Number one, it was a bit too technical, uh, and they thought it was kind of like profoundly, uh, I don't know, showy or something. They just thought it was kind of embarrassing. I think, or um, they didn't know what to think. And you know, to be uh, to be for guns and is, is to be uh, kind of a rube. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think maybe they assumed I was just some Texas shit kicker, uh, kind of making some noise, but. Uh, then the, some popular science interviews came out, and then Wired named me a dangerous guy, and all of a sudden I was a kind of you know campus celebrity or something, uh, like the Harry Potter of the digital apocalypse over there at UT. <laughs> not not just a Texas shit kicker. There you go. Not just that. So I could, I got to wear the boots, and I was afforded a, the proper kind of fear and respect that I think. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, then you could tell that everybody's attitude changed around like December of 2012, and then it, and then of course. Anyway, things spun out of control, and I never came back to law school. But um, you know, a bunch of Obama acolytes and high priests and everything in training. What What about the rest of the uh, the world? What reaction have you gotten from people around the world for your notoriety and your your uh, activities in these regards? Well, even today, look, I, I get emails about every day from people that in any corner of the earth, either telling me like, "Hey, dude, I got my I got your files like on a boat." In Spain, you know, like I got them, you know. Don't worry about it. Keep the faith. Or things like, hey, you know, I'm really looking for this file. Uh, or just weird anecdotes. I mean, I I know people from all over the world that have made them, have the file. The news, the news is always like reporting that just like a hundred thousand liberators were downloaded. Well, no, they went to the pirate bay and they've it clearly been downloaded at least a million times. I mean, it's like the hot digital stuff. You know, even if you're not interested in guns, you just got it because it was interesting for a little bit. I mean. They, to go along with that, there was the. I remember right after it came out, I was over here and we saw we found that video on YouTube of the guy in Brazil making oh, it. Oh sure, sure. And not only not only did he make it, but he had made it uh, smaller so that it wasn't you know able to work. To which you were right. like, we'll find a we'll find a bullet to kill <laughs> that. There's some bullet that are working there. A micro uh, bullet. Yeah, man. Well, uh, and then and then there's the other high level stuff. I mean, what excites me the most about it is you know it's been in the Times a few times just because certain world or national security agencies are just trying to grapple with it to kind of appraise whether it actually is what we say it is, and, and then they're like, oh, holy shit, it is. Uh, it was great. Interpol was doing a thing with it. Um, 
you know, it's been it's been acquired by the Victoria and Albert Museum of Design uh, in, into their permanent collection. Uh, I just got that export approved, by the way, <laughs> like two days ago. It took me three months for the State Department to approve, you know, kind of one transfer, the one museum, right, totally innocuous. Um, and then in the end, right, it, it also in this microcosm proves like what we were really able to do. I mean, it doesn't matter if they approve it or not. The museum already had it. They printed it out back in September for London Design Week. They're just waiting on my stuff to get over there. It's beautiful. Um, some Israeli journalists snuck it into the net in the set, the Israeli Parliament. You know, like all these journalists. I used, they, you know, they haven't even waited for the terror to happen. They've just kind of like produced it themselves in, in the vacuum. Um, most recently, there was a scare in Manchester where some police found a 3D printer in a suspected gang member's basement. And they go, oh, Jesus Christ, oh, my God, they found some spare parts. And they were like, these must be gun parts, you know. It's the kind of, it's the Rorschach test of superstatism, you know. They're like, oh, my God, what are these? They could be assembled into a weapon. Um, so I think the, the gun has infected, right? It's not just stunned or, or been abusive or traumatic. It's also infected the kind of thinking of modern Internet and, and state police forces. Uh, they see it where it even isn't, you know. So I, it's had a beautiful effect in only a, only a few months. What do you see as um, the state's response to all this? What do you What do you think is going to happen with regulation of three D printing? What are they going to try to do? What can they get away with doing? What's the intersection of uh, copyright and sort of these patent ideas combined with the regulation of three D printing? Well, I guess keep it a keep it a secret between us, guys. But on like December thirteenth or something, the uh, the old Undetectable Firearms Act will lapse, and it will actually be legal to make all plastic and three D printed guns uh, in America. So they they weren't really on the ball with that one. But uh, I mean, you know, the time how, hasn't how, run how out. How did that happen? Was that like some old law that had a sunset provision, or how did that happen? It was a it was a fake law passed in like the nineteen eighties because there was a guy. Well, there's a guy named Byron, and there was also a movie. I think a Die Hard movie where. Uh, Owen and Glock also came up with new kind of new lower steel polymer kind of weapons. Anyway, there was this confluence of cultural factors in the 80s which produced a congressional scare, and they created what, what's called the Undetectable Firearms Act. You can't make a gun; it's all plastic in the end. I mean, there's actual some relative. There's some guidance. You can make mostly plastic, but you can't make it all plastic. It it lapsed in 2003. Um, they renewed it, and it's going to lapse again in 2013 in December. Um, there have been some congressmen, and uh, Chuck Schumer also proposed modifications and, and updating, like modernizations of this law. But in the end, those laws were just surrogates for attacking digital manufactured weapons. Uh, but there's not enough like public demand or support or even visibility on the issue. So I, I think practically speaking, and we're talking to lobbyists. I'm not just shooting the, you know, the breeze here. But the lobbyists are telling us as well that it looks like it's going to lapse. And that's good. Maybe we can have another conversation about how, well, all guns should be treated as guns and not kind of a special, uh, you know, categories, but um, to answer, like, the bigger part of your question, you know, the bird's eye view stuff, the big picture stuff, uh, I think there will be, there's at least been an appetite demonstrated for trying to regulate uh, the hardware of 3D printing or even the software, at least investigating what kinds of softwares can be uh, can be mandated or, or something, but um, even, like, even the government of Canada, uh, release a new contract. They want to do a, a study on how to regulate 3D printed guns. I'm going to oblige them by throwing my hat in the ring, by the way. I'll take their money to tell them that they can't do anything. But um, basically... Yeah, I was about to say, I bet you're about to get a lot of job offers from different uh, unsavory agencies 
coming up? Uh, you know, the, the only contact I had was like in May, like two days after I released Liberator. Some someone on behalf of TSA was like, "Yeah, we're gonna take delivery of two of your prototypes." Let's see, I can see the email. It was like that. It's like, "Yeah, tell me when I we can get them." And I was like, "No, <laughs> like no." And uh, <laughs> and so that that was all I had. But yeah, I think. Uh, there are other governments in the world kind of interested, uh, and I'll, maybe I'll take that tax money. I don't know, but you know, it would be the end of some bureaucrat's career if they actually did give one of my subsidiaries a contract. Um, I guess, though, I should say that yeah, there's an appetite to regulate these things. Uh, I don't think it's very practical, but in the end, well, that's never stopped bad legislation. So, I guess it'll depend upon certain moments. Uh, there, there do seem to be templates already that the RIA and the MPAA have demonstrated. Uh, they've done, they've issued takedown notices. Uh, for certain movie props that have been reproduced as 3D printed files uh, at popular online repositories like Thingiverse. So uh, there's some precedents. I'm talking to a, an attorney in Austin though, well I probably shouldn't say his name, but he, I mean, he represents big companies and I think there's ways of go ahead and going ahead to use some of the precedents that Amazon and Google have fought for over the past decade to protect, to protect how we at least access 3D printed files but it's anyone's guess as to what kind of programs are instituted. I would suspect, and just to hurry up to finish, uh, they're going to find that this is extremely difficult because it's a general computing problem. I mean, the hardware is software agnostic. You can't force people to run certain softwares on them. So in the end, we might depend upon a situation where most people use retail, kind of like they get current desktop printers, and that those companies are complicit with the regulatory agenda mm -hmm. uh, and just kind of load their stuff, you know, preloaded with uh, certain database stuff that back home and you're doing things you shouldn't do. On the other hand, nowadays, what do national regulations really amount to? I mean, if you've got, you've got a lot of countries in the world and a lot of places, it's a big planet. Uh, I mean, you can get anything from anywhere, pretty much. Uh, what, what does it even matter if uh, one state regulates this or one other state regulates that? Mm, yeah, I mean, practically speaking, the game is over, right? Um, but I, at least for my person and my company and other people like us, uh, we are kind of caught up in the in the cogs with these big agencies like the the State Department's uh, Division of what do you call it? Department of Defense Trade Controls. I mean, there's going to be nothing but pain, and you know, for the people who keep breaking through some of these boundaries. Uh, but yeah, in in their wake is nothing but a, a kind of profusion of of this type of activity and sharing. There's only I think only reason to be optimistic. Yeah, it's thank God we don't have a, a world state, and I guess that would be inconceivable. Uh, but uh, sometimes I, I find it just 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 laughable the extent to which, you know, all states sort of live in the past. You know, they, they, they you know, all states are nation states, and yet we are living in a global economic environment with global communication that was ne never be never before. And people don't ca don't care about these borders, and the states are stuck. And regulating these these increasingly irrelevant units. I think that's right. Uh, they bring in like I guess art maybe like all liberal institutions are revelations of centuries past or something. You know, like they they don't even represent anything to us anymore. They just kind of like, well, we're here, we have power, yeah. and we must continue to exercise. Um, you know, it is so ferociously difficult to do business in this country as well, right? And I'm not just meaning that from the Bitcoin or 3D printed guns perspective. I got a letter in the mail, like literally when I got to my apartment today. Uh, that Texas had forfeited defense distributes right to do business, just kind of like out of nowhere. I was like, what the hell? I called my accountant. He's like, oh, sorry, we forgot to file this one thing. Uh, and of course, it wasn't the long form or anything. It was like the ancillary form of some kind. And, you know, I mean, like at every level, there's some, there's some 
institution trying to get in between you and just doing the shit you want to do. <laughs> and so it isn't the it isn't the Department of uh, you know it's, it's not the IRS, it's not the FBI, it's not the State Department that ends up shutting defense distributed down. <laughs> it's the Texas Comptroller. Uh, <laughs> yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, right. make it up. Right. Hey, uh, Cody, do you um, uh, can you can you just mention what what I who the thinkers are that influenced you the most? I mean, as you go through your day and you think about the people who shaped your your worldview, um, are there are there particular books or, or thinkers that you that I'm not suggesting you recommend things to people, but just that have that have had a really powerful influence on on the way you look at the world. Oh, uh, sure, man, sure. Um, I taught you everything you know. Look, everybody needs to read Nietzsche. They need to get through that, uh, at least to get the essential. Like, what the hell was he talking about? Uh, illiberal values and aristocratic ideals about you know like uh, this contrary idea of what you know what morality actually is as a force in history, or it's at least a useful conversation. I think you need to kind of start at a certain foundation. And a lot of the post-Marxist thought draws upon, um, re rehabilitates Marx through a Nietzschean kind of... And so I would start with Nietzsche and some of his great stuff like Genealogy of Morals or you know, Twilight of the Idols, if you want to get into the poetry. Um, I think Foucault's description of power is really important, even if it's kind of irrelevant now. Just these redescriptions, these really, these really resonant redescriptions um, of what might otherwise be benign ways of, of organizing society through time. Um, so anything that Foucault did, but especially I guess his History of Sexuality, Volume One, the best kind of and briefest, uh, you know, like expressions of, of kind of what was going on there with that guy. Uh, and then uh, I like uh, Hoppe's Democracy: The God That Failed, right? To kind of be within our own little orbit here. Um, his his contempt for uh, Kevin Carson's uh, Thermidor of the Progressives is a beautiful essay that captures the ideology of the, of the 20th century, I think, I think really, really well. Um, I like a lot of, like, Proudhon's spirit, right? I mean, he's totally wrong when it comes to, you know, none of these guys understood political economy, but, I mean, they were just groping and grasping, and they had revolutionary zeal. So I like, especially when I'm mining for ideas, I go back to some of those guys, like uh, Landar and Proudhon. It's um, probably a good place to start. How about that? Well, that's an extraordinary uh, mix of stuff, actually. Interesting, yeah, very interesting. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, in, in old categories, uh, somebody might might say that that's you know in, uh, uh, in, incoherent and you know too too much too much of a, 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 a retrograde. It's too old. It's too old to matter. Well, I mean, but but look, I mean, you, you've got the radical left or the radical right, or maybe these categories don't mean anything anymore. I mean, you, you, the way you seem to have done your reading, you, you're just looking for, for ideas wherever you can find them, and that's kind of an extraordinary thing. Well, I appreciate that. I, I don't, I never really thought it would be a praise, right, as a strategy. I never, you know, but uh, it's, I don't know, it, it works, and I, it's not like uh, I'm looking for this kind of totally integrated worldview or something, you know, don't get me wrong, but... um. And I, I hate to sound like some kind of new age religious type, right? I'm not saying like, oh, everybody's got a kernel of the truth. I'm not going there either. Um, I found a little kind of roadmap in between, uh, right? Some of these, some of these thinkers. Well, the world is the world is complicated, and it requires a diverse a number of, of thinkers and brilliant minds to kind of put put things together. We may never figure it out, but uh, uh, but it's a wonderful adventure. Yeah, Cody. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about yourself? I mean, we we've uh, picked your brain on several of your ideas. Or is there anything you want to bring up or mention? I'm good, man. You guys, 
you guys have got me pretty well. I, I mentioned in our email that I'd like to have a kind of IP discussion. I was in Toronto uh, with Redmond and the meeting crew there, and the guy Richard was having a really hard time. Not a hard time, actually. He, he seemed pretty confident that um, well, there, that there could that intellectual property in the end was quite consistent, especially with the Rothbardian view of ethics and justice. Uh, and so he kind of took me to task for what I was doing with DefCAD and, and other things and trying to advocate for, you know, the total liberalization of all these shapes and everything. Uh, so I would welcome a conversation from you guys about how you can, you know, how we can justify uh, no intellectual property and ideas, um, and particularly if we have an argument outside of the kind of property because scarcity argument. Mm. You know, one point that Stefan has made repeatedly to me that I always come back to because there's just endless complications on this topic, right? But, uh, but uh, Stefan's constantly reminded me that anytime you have state-regulated intellectual property, it's always about coercing third parties of what they can and cannot do with their own property. So there, it always and everywhere involves aggression. Against against third parties, uh, IP necessarily does that. I mean, if you copyright something, you're <clears throat> you're aggressing against somebody else's rights uh, to make that same thing, or you patent somebody, you're aggressing against somebody else's rights. And so, uh, just just on the face of it, uh, it it's incompatible with 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 human liberty. Uh, just for that reason, it, it's inconceivable you could recreate anything like the modern copyright or patent system through contract, for example. And this is just a myth. Um, so, do I characterize your position right, uh, Stefan? I think so, and I also would say that, I mean, Cody is living this in a sense. I mean, you're being attacked not for pirating other people's ideas, but for spreading your own ideas. So it's almost the reverse, right? It's like, not only has this IP idea become so crazy and fascist uh, and used to censor free speech and used to prevent people from using other people's ideas, but now it's being used for what its original purpose was, which was to prevent you from spreading your own ideas. I mean, that's the original purpose of copyright, is to prevent people from copying books and publishing books that the government and the church didn't want people to have access to. And that's exactly what's going on with the government control of, uh, I mean, using these BXA, Bureau of Export Control, Administration Controls, et cetera, that you're talking about, um, and other rules like copyright and um, Terror, terrorism laws, etc., to prevent you from just distributing information to people that mm -hmm. you actually came up with on your own to a certain degree. So I think it's sort of um, an Orwellian retrenchment to the original purpose of copyright. Um, it, it seems just crazy to me that – I mean you, you're talking about these older thinkers that influenced you, Foucault and uh, uh, Nietzsche. Um, I mean, if you look at Benjamin Tucker, one of the greatest of all the original libertarian thinkers, he said, if you want to keep an idea to yourself, keep it to yourself. <laughs> it's very simple. right? If you start <laughs> publishing information, then you can't be surprised and people learn from it and copy it. In fact, that's actually your goal in some ways. Well, so, right. Um, yeah. And can you guys still hear me? Yeah. I, I can, yes. Okay, I've had a. My phone is telling me it's crashed, but I'm gonna disregard its message and just gonna have. Pretend I think your video's like, gone, but your audio's there. No, now your video's back. I, oh, it is. It's back. Well, uh, I'm gonna come back. Now he's gone. Now he's gone. It was like this this apparition, you know. Well, just when we get to the nitty gritty, 
his video feed fades. Coincidence? I think not. They're difficult. I have no idea. This is incredible. Kind of like um, I said, those fried pies were delicious. Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, so, like, I the, your description, I think it's beautiful as well. And like, uh, well, it's kind of returned to the original purpose in the first place, right? It comes out of this what, what, semi-feudal context where the, it was the king who wanted to d- determine who spread information, or or the church in the end, right? The, um, I like, I agree with all of that. I just like, um, like Jeffrey, when you were saying though, you know, let's assume away. Uh, for the purpose of libertarian argument, uh, a state or public context in enforcing copyright, and get back to what your assertion about, like, well, um, a private contractual system enforcing copyright, it, w- it would just be a myth. Well, okay, well, why why is that so? Uh, Stefan, I'm going to let you answer that because I mean... Well, uh, uh, well let, let, me, let me answer it one way. One way is that I have never seen a coherent way to distinguish between what we allegedly favor, which is free market competition, right? So all these arguments for IP that I've ever heard, which is like, um, well, how am I going to make a profit if you can copy my pharmaceutical drug recipe? How am I going to make a profit? Well, the question is how you make a profit. It's how you're going to compete with people. So the real question is, what's you know what's wrong with competition? So, you know, if if you own your recipes and your designs and your ideas, which means that you can stop people from competing with you. How long can you stop it, and what means can you use, and and why why doesn't the same argument apply to regular competition? Like, you know, if you open up your 3D printing stand to make guns, and someone else wants to com- come up with a, a better stand next to you to compete with you, why shouldn't they be prohibited? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could you could extend that argument to all of commercial life. Yeah, there's I no reason no- to do anything. Yeah, there's no way to draw an objective line between what's permissible and what's not. And then you'll have the objectivists and the IP libertarians say that, well, all property involves drawing borders. No, you want a perpetual, perpetual uh, IP so that like Plato's you know, descendants would, would still be collecting royalties or something. That's what I, I use Stefan's um, – <laughs> I think it's an intellectual monopoly where you talk about, well, the original caveman who came up with the, you know, the lean-to or house design should have mm-hmm. – you know, being paid his you know, kind of due uh, for his design. Uh, this guy, this guy that was arguing with me was very forceful though. Like, and you know, reasoning by analogy, which is which is always problematic. But he was saying like, look, uh, if you can prove that you're the first mover to an idea, you know, why can't you homestead it or something? Well, you know, yeah, but, you know, but yeah, here's the you know, but to me, the fundamental problem with this idea of contract governing um, ideas is that it mischaracterizes what ideas are. Uh, it, it, we mentioned earlier that ideas are, are malleable, unlike real property. So if you you sell me a chair, okay, as a contract, you get the chair, you get the money, it's all clean. But you sell me an idea, uh, what, but, but, but what if I change that just slightly? You know, at what point does, is this violation of contract, you know? Uh, right. And, and this is the way it works in the real world. I mean, ideas are this kind of, you know, amorphous thing. It's constantly evolving and changing. And it's, it's amusing to me that even in the IP wars that you have, like, for example, between uh, Samsung and the iPhone, uh, that clock has stolen the bird's IP. I can't <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Um, there's, but, by the way, there's a famous thing I posted a YouTube video that got taken down. There was just some guy filmed, uh, recorded these birds chirping in the forest, and it sounded similar to some nature video someone had posted, and it got caught by the copyright system and it got taken down. 
That was very funny. But but you know the the like the IP wars between between Samsung and and iPhone have ultimately not stopped them from learning from each other. So Samsung Samsung you know is able to copy the cool ideas that iPhone has just by changing them enough. Uh, to avoid the IP police and vice versa, and eventually, you know, we're we're seeing competition emerge. I mean, not even the the these grim and gr brutal IP wars have been able to stop the markets from actually um, emulating and 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 copying each other. And, yeah, and, and you do that through by by changing ideas. I mean, ideas can change, so the contracts can't actually. And they should uh, change. Anyway. It's a good thing. It's a yeah. good thing. Ideas change and they grow. But I, I, two quick responses, Cody, to what you're asking about, and we can't go into it into too much detail here. But um, the contract argument presupposes it has a, a fallacious view of contract. Um, a contract is just a derivative concept of property, right? The fundamental libertarian concept is the idea that there are scarce resources in the world which there should be property rights in. That is, a certain owner should have the right to use that resource as he sees fit, which would include the right to make de deals about it, to give people permission or to exclude them from permission, which is what a contract is. So the idea of a contract is just the exercise of control rights over a resource by an owner. So you can't just use the idea of contract to justify uh, IP rights because that's question begging. And then the second thing about if I come up with an idea, I should own it. That's based upon a confusion, a fallacious idea that one of the sources of ownership is creation. Okay, Now that's an idea perpetuated by Randians who were overly influenced by an overly metaphorical uh, formulation by John Locke. Uh, I would say that libertarianism does not include creation as a source of ownership at all. In fact, it's not one of the sources of ownership at all. The only source of ownership of a scarce resource is either original appropriation, which means you perform some action by which you establish some kind of visible sign that I am now using this thing that was previously unowned, some scarce resource. You inborder it. So that's original appropriation. Some people call that homesteading. Or by contractual assignment from a previous owner. That is the only way of acquiring ownership of a resource, and that's exhaustively complete. In other words… If you have these two rules, you can always determine who owns a given contested resource. The problem with IP is they want to come up with creation as a third way of right. trying to own things, but it has to undercut the first two. Right. You know, so that that's fundamentally the problem with this IP. It's overly it's based overly much on a metaphor and an imprecise, non-rigorous way of thinking about things. But, Creation is not a source of ownership. But this, this requires a little bit of careful thought, you know, because it, apparently it's not intuitive. Um, uh, you, you see some thinkers talk about, well, if you, if you own a stone and, and some knives and, and hammer and chisel or whatever and you make a statue, then somehow you've created some new, new thing that you own, which is a beautiful sculpture, you know. Um, but that's actually not true. You just own the same crap you owned before. It's just in a different shape. Or if, if I own some coffee grounds and some hot water in a cup, and make coffee. I haven't just magically you know, caused into being some some new uh, new form of, of ownership. I've just transformed what I what I exist and have, and it changes absolutely nothing. I'm still the owner of exactly what I owned before. Yeah. The the other mistake is which related to that is people say, well, but sometimes people sell their services. Right on the market, they'll they'll sell their labor like an employment contract, or they'll sell their ideas even in a sense. Okay. Like you pay me to give you information, and right. then they they reason, well, how can you sell it if you didn't own it? 
so you must have owned it. So they started going backwards from contract metaphors and analogies to justify their original uh, hypothesis, which is that ideas can be owned. But wait a minute. You know, you, you know, you're, you're, in that case, you're just you're selling your, your service of, of the information delivery. You're not actually yes. selling information. Yes, exactly. I agree. I agree. So they're describing it in a way that's convenient to describe it. But then they 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 settle, uh, they they engage in equivocation in a, in a sense because they assume that if you sell something, and if I can describe the sale of the contract sale in a certain way, the thing that's the object of the sale must be owned by the person selling it. But this is Therefore, all, this is it all has nonsense. To be I mean, I mean, but yeah. the problem is we talk about this all the time. We say we're going to download a song, right? Yeah. Yes, but it's not true, actually. Well, I mean, Cody mentioned gonna... that earlier on. He said that he didn't. You were giving an example of the guy that copied files. He didn't really take the files. He didn't steal the files. He just copied the information. So downloading just means learning or copying, right? I think I think that's yeah. And we're finally getting into this is where I started getting traction in my argument with this guy. And I don't argue with IP libertarians, right? I mean, this is kind of my first event, so it was. I don't know it's really productive, but the the success I was finding was just in confusing him with his own kind of like you know commitment to the process. I was like. <laughs> Then what is the process of ideation? Show me the concrete like boundaries of an idea. You know, exactly. like uh, um, you know, and and these aren't. I don't think they're not. It's not like they're just evidentiary problems. Like I don't think there there will be a certain set of technologies one day which can kind of clearly demonstrate to you the process. Kind of back to Jeffrey's earlier point. Even if someone gives you an idea, it's not it's not clear that that was even alienable in the first place, or right, right. even if you even received what you think you received. <laughs> so uh, these are like fundamentally flawed. Things in my mind, I, you just can't. The reason by analogy like that is is well incredibly dangerous, right? To, well, the, the the other problem is if you ask a typical advocate of the existing system, why would copyright be covered by life of the author plus seventy years, but patent by seventeen years? And they have they have no answer whatsoever for that clear distinction. And what you say, well, what about things that are not covered by IP right now, like fashion designs, or in perfume smells? And abstract ideas, and algorithms, mathematical algorithms, and physics, physical, you know, physics theories. Why shouldn't right. they be covered? They have no answer whatsoever, unless they're Gallimbosians or Spooners, Spoonerites or Randians, and they say, "Well, yeah, we should cover everything. And the entire world should be covered with IP, and you know, all life would grind to a halt because we could never perform any action whatsoever without getting permission of everyone on the earth and all their ancestors, and you know, forever. It's crazy." So if you just point out these arbitrary inconsistencies, then they really have no answer to these things, in my experience. No, you're right. I mean, and, and he, I think he parried the, that impractic, well, whatever, that, um, what's it called? Um, Ar arbitrary. Yeah, that arbitrariness argument that I gave to him, he parried that pretty well. Uh, but right, he, he, his resort was, well, look, there should be IP for facts and things. I'm just like, well, look, man, this is, you know, get back to me when, when we can really kind of do this. Uh, I feel a little better after talking to you guys, but I I thought it was a conversation worth having. Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 fascinating. I mean, this, you've unleashed something horrible by even asking the question because I mean, Contella and I can talk about this for like you know whatever weeks, weeks. It's insane. Actually, actually we have <laughs> <laughs> months, years. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Cody. Well, Cody, we... but this shows the intersection of IP and what he's doing. So this is uh, right. fascinating. This is why this is so uh, interesting and so uh, yeasty. Potentially but, but important, meant, but, but Stefan, we, I would we need to let Cody give a, like a really strong and compelling pitch for the Dark Wallet. Uh, All right, uh, Kickstarter campaign. In other words, oh, it to go go. Just to have it mentioned was my kind of my ask, right? But um, 
Well, I, so Indiegogo.com, Dark Wallet, we've had that up for about five days now, and we've raised okay. about $40,000. Our goal is 2000 So um, I guess you'll be late to the party, but I, we would like support. So within the next six months, we can have a public beta, which fulfills our dimension, or at least our helps us tell our story about what we think Bitcoin should and could be. Uh, you should have financial freedom of speech, your own sovereignty, your own keys, deterministic wallets. No one should be seeing what you're doing with your money. And in a way, this is a way to exercise your libertarian beliefs. You want to undermine the state? Well, you know, hop on board. Yeah. And uh, Michael, Michael Goldstein, uh, are you involved in this project? Uh, I, I helped with yeah. the video. Yeah, actually. He, he, Those uh, ominous shots of Cody were... He filmed them, my actually. Doing. Yeah. And we, uh, we even storyboarded. And the phrases. Yeah, no, we, <laughs> we storyboarded together. And this is another weird thing. We had a documentary crew filming us that too so that was also very self-consciously done but I was like Michael I should say something at the end what should I say I think he was like let there be dark and I was like oh my god yeah <laughs> <laughs> I like how all you uh, all you all you Texas guys have California accents I don't know how did that happen I mean you, oh, shit. you, you don't sound like goat ropers uh, you know I watch, I watch too much TV it's that global culture intruding oh, upon the, you know, regionality be damned so um, yeah man. Uh, well, look, guys, this was a pleasure, and I, I hope you can invite me to do it again. That was really fun, Cody. It's just, you know, after, you know, it's it's great for us, too, because, I mean, I know you've been hounded by the by the press and, and everything for, for so long, so it's nice to catch you in a relaxed state where you have, have you feel free to talk and everything. It's lovely to get to know you. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Th thanks a lot, Cody. Yeah, thank you. And Stephanie, it was a pleasure to talk and meet you, man. You, too. You, too. We'll be in touch. We'll take care. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys.